Listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode 219. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co hosts, Jelena Levin, Pontus Böckmann, and Deborah Hyde. Sziasztok! Всем привет! Hey son, hey son! Hello everybody! Hello Deborah! <laughs> Welcome back Deborah! It's, I'm very happy to be back! Mm, we're happy to have you! So I understand that you are staying home as well as everybody else, so you're just not running around, running events uh, all over the country, being busy with skeptical talks? I'm not running Uh-oh. anything. No, I thought that since uh, we were in the middle of an outbreak of a lung disease, that it would help if I increased my oxygen capacity in the event that I got ill. So um, I went for a run and broke my ankle. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> what a shame. <laughs> yeah, I know. And they say running is good for you, right? <laughs> <laughs> They're wrong. That's a myth. Yeah. <laughs> they are wrong. <laughs> oh, my God. So um, I, I would just have ignored it, except that I put it on Facebook. And of course, Facebook is, my Facebook is jammed with medical people, doctors and nurses, uh, no homeopaths. Yeah. And um, so they all said, you've got to go to the hospital. So I went to the hospital. Ah. Yeah. But how, how long did you, did you put it off? Two days. Two days. Two days. Oh. Yeah. I was hobbling around on a broken ankle for two days. Were they mad at you when you got to the hospital? Uh, no, they they, no? they were because usually they say you should have come here right away. I, That was very irresponsible. Well, I think they understood. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody was was just done up to the nines. It looked like some kind of post apocalyptic movie set, you know. Yeah. Was it really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, everybody wow. had all of the masks and the wow. gowns and everything on. Yeah. At least they all had masks. Well, It's not the case everywhere around Europe. <laughs> no, that's true, actually. And we're kind of running out here in some places, too. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it's not shortage of the actual items themselves, but logistical problems with getting them to where they need to be. Mm. Oh, yeah. Right. But the hospital that I went to, I was actually really impressed with how they seemed to have sealed the hospital off into two places. There's the kind of active corona bit um, and then there's the other bit and you have to take different ways around the hospital uh, according to which bit you're mm-hmm. you're in. So okay. there's they're, they're sort of quarantining and, and just keeping these areas you know devoted to the to what they need to do. Yeah. Well that sounds very mm. very good. Yeah. Sens- sensible, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that that should be an example for many. Hmm. But um, yeah, we tend to talk a lot about coronavirus here on uh, on this show. <laughs> so I think our listeners might be interested in what you've been up to lately, uh, researching and putting out historical topics on YouTube and stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I just I just started a new YouTube channel called Deborah Hyde Folklore. Great. And I put on there an old video I did from many years ago when I went to Rhode Island and they had a strange outbreak of vampirism there um, about a century and a half ago. And uh, I put a new one up as well, which is from a visit I did to Visegrad Castle in Hungary last year. Because, yeah, yeah <laughs> and, and it interested me because Visegrad Castle was a place where uh, Vlad Tepes 
who some people think that Dracula was based on, was kept for 12 years. By Matthias Corvinus. Oh. Yes, yes, by Matthias Corvinus. Yeah, wow. What do you mean? Are you saying that Dra- Dra- uh, Graf Dracula is not real? <laughs> oh, he, he was a real man, oh, um, and he was, he was a very harsh, <laughs> if effective, warlord. But, I, you know, he wasn't a vampire. And if you say that to Romanians, they get understandably really upset because he's one of their <laughs> national heroes. And, and the only reason anybody else knows about Vlad Dracula is because of Bram Stoker's uh, probably basing Dracula on him. So Yeah. 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 <laughs> so the national hero gets a bad time everywhere else. It's a kind of weird national hero, right? Isn't it? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't think so because he was very... Um, he fought for Romanians. So much of Central Europe, and, and you guys know this, and a lot of your listeners will know this, so much of, your, of Central Europe has been fought over by different empires. And so people who speak the same language and have the same sort of identities aren't necessarily all living in units of one country. And so Vlad... Tepes, at a certain point in history, fought for the rights of Romanians over the people who had come to live in the region. And there were sometimes it was they were willing immigrants. Uh, sometimes there were armies marching in the wrong direction. I mean, the Ottoman Empire sort of really gave southeastern Europe a really hard time for a long time, and he fought against them. So he oh, right. he was a hero. Um, mm-hmm. Just not a very nice man. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that can be told about a lot of uh, medieval f- uh, figures and characters yeah. uh, that we don't necessarily take into account when we talk about them. Um, one of our national heroes, the founder of the Kingdom of Hungary, uh, Stephen I, he's widely considered as, as a saint and he is among the, the Catholic saints as well. But there is a lot of blood on his hands, mm. yeah. and still we revere him as a national hero. He fought against his own because he wanted to introduce Christianity yeah. and retire the old ways. Mm. Anyhow, should we expect uh, more videos to come? Yes, I'm working on some at the moment. I've got quite a few kind of waiting in the wings. I also really um, I want to interview a man named Mike Covell, who is sort of the expert on uh, a werewolf that has been found in a northern industrial town in um, in England. Ooh. I should say it hasn't been found. It's been spotted, <laughs> uh, but it probably doesn't exist. <laughs> and <I've laughs> you never know. Don't say that. Yeah. You don't know. <laughs> that's true. Can't prove a negative. That's no. true. I, I'm a sceptic, not a bigot. So um, <laughs> yeah, that's good. good one. I wrote a chapter for an academic book last year about this. So I got to know about this. I got to speak to Mike Covell. And when his band went to improves, we will talk about it as well, because it's a fascinating sort of cryptozoological mm-hmm. thing from the last few years here in England. Yeah. Exciting. Right. Yeah. And uh, will you be uh, giving um, any talks as well uh, online, probably with uh, Skeptics in the Pub online events uh, in the coming weeks? I guess I should do, because I should do my bit. The last talk I gave in public was about a vampire uh, from Cumbria in England that was supposed to happen over about 150 years ago. That's on the internet as well. That was at Conway Hall. But um, yeah, I mean, do, going online would be 
an, an interesting thing to do at the moment because obviously that's the only way that we are sharing information and talking to each other right now. Yeah, yeah. Both of us, me and Andres, I don't know, Pontus, if you were there, we attended the first Skeptics in the Pub online presentation with... Kim Al-Kareli. Yeah, exactly. And it was so well done. I think about 600 people yeah. were listening yeah. at the same time and at some point he, he was kind of visible uh, next to his presentation and kind of talking about it and then they had to switch him off. But it was actually just as effective. I mean, you can't interact as, as well, mm. but you can submit your questions mm-hmm. and people submitted a bunch of questions and uh, it was really well done. I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the next one. Mm. It sounds fantastic. And Pontus himself has given a talk. Yes, I did. In Swedish, though. It, How did that go? Yeah, it went very well. I didn't have 600 uh, participants. We had, it's more like 835. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, what was the subject of your talk? It was how to spot, how can you tell what's fake or not when everything is so uncertain in these corona times? Yeah. So, so because it leaves, if everything is uncertain and nobody can tell you, not even the experts, what's really right, how can you argue with people who are spreading nonsense? How can you say to them, that's nonsense and this is speculation, but it's scientific speculation, which you, we should still listen to. And, and how can you tell the difference? So it was an experiment. We wanted to try out the, the, the technology of it all. And uh, we, we did learn a lot from the UK skeptics to do that. Uh, and it is available on uh, YouTube if anybody wants to practice their Swedish, because it was in Swedish. <laughs> but I, I know we have a, a, quite a few Swedish listeners. So, so we'll put the link into the, the show notes. Great. All right. Mm. Make sure that you you give talks as well, you, you uh, Deborah, because uh, I think uh, many of our listeners who are familiar with your works uh, will agree that uh, listening to you talking about medieval stuff and uh, all those myths and vampire stories and uh, werewolf stories, it's just fascinating. We could be listening to that hours on end. Yeah. Super fascinating. And I also want to note that uh, what was so cool about this, Deborah, as well, People from all over the world could attend that presentation. So yes. we had people from yes. Australia, Japan, New Zealand, uh, like I was uh, chiming in from Seattle. So it was actually, I'd say, in some ways better. <laughs> <laughs> it's the way ahead, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I, I think when this hopefully blows over the whole pandemic uh, eventually, I think we will still, we will, of course, go back to having physical skeptics in the pub meetings because that has its charm and its place but we'll still do this uh, online thing once in a while because it yeah. it's a little bit of another kind of thing and we reach more people etc yeah if you to- when we're talking about skeptical outreach i think that has a, a much better <laughs> better mm-hmm. reach mm-hmm. Uh, in general but the problem is that drinking uh, on your own in front of your computer is a bit different so cheers <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> okay. all right no, so maybe we should go on before we get into the actual segments of the sh- of the show. There's a few things we want to mention. I want to mention that the, the German skeptics gave up. They have done something very good again, uh, and listeners may remember John Cook, whom we re- interviewed a couple of months ago, back on episode 210. Mm-hmm. We took and then we talked about his latest book, which was um, Cranky Uncle versus Climate Change. But he's also behind uh, the Skeptical Science webpage, the debunking handbook, and many other things. So back to the GVUP. They have now translated the Conspiracy Handbook brochure that John Cook has co-written with uh, Stefan Lewandowski. 
And uh, I want to try to pronounce the German translation of the title, and it's called Das Handbuch über Verschwörungsmythen. <laughs> and uh, it's now available to download for free on the GWP site. I, I want to mention it because it's exactly the kind of international collaboration that we want to see. Not everybody having to reinvent the wheel from scratch. Take what's there and translate it into your, your language. And it could be also translating from, uh, a, well, let's call it a smaller language into English. So make it available to everyone. Yeah. 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 And uh, Bamel Winkler. Uh, she's uh, she's coordinating these uh, translation efforts. Mm. So yes. if you're interested in translating something that is available on um, uh, Skeptical Science, uh, the website that John Cook manages, you will find a lot of a lot of stuff that is worth translating. And uh, Barbara Winkler can uh, help with that. So uh, we can help make the connection with her uh, if you're interested. So just uh, get in touch with us. Yeah. And our friends uh, from Concept, the Portuguese Skeptic Society, they have been super busy all March um, collaborating with different people in order to promote good information on COVID-19, of course, related things. And they've just pu published the blog that we will link to where they combine all the information that they found and the activities that they that took place um, throughout the month and uh, the people they spoke to and uh, the ways to battle the disinformation. It's all in Portuguese. They're referencing excellent uh, websites and resources, of which one is Polygrapho, uh, website that provides coronavirus fact checks. So um, for Portuguese speakers, that's the place to go. And uh, another we website called ANMSP, uh, which is uh, a website for National Association of Public Health Physicians. And this website provides um, all up-to-date information for COVID-19. And they partnering with several collaborators to keep people updated on what the, the numbers are in Portugal, of course. Um, they've got wonderful charts and graphs. Well, I mean, wonderful. It's, <laughs> I guess, not the word I would use to describe. Well, I mean, I, I get excited about chats and graphs. That's why I'm saying wonderful. Uh, as I was look, looking through the website, they talk about the scientific evidence, what's true and what's what we know so far to be true about the virus and what's not, and promoting some of the social networks, and even suggest what to do at home. Mm. <laughs> because we're now all stuck here. Yeah. For, <laughs> for how long? Yeah. So, so <laughs> But that's all in Portuguese, right? This is all in Portuguese. Mm -hmm. uh, all these resources are in Portuguese. Um, and we will link it all in our notes from our concept friends. Yeah. And, and I will add that they have also taken the step to go online with uh, on YouTube. So uh, uh, on the 17th of April... Our friends Diana and Huao, they uh, released a video on, uh, I think it was a live video, but you can still see it on, uh, on, on YouTube. So we'll link to that as well. And the topic was, again, of course, COVID-19 and how you can spot disinformation and pseudoscience in the times of COVID-19. Sounds very much like the topic I chose. <laughs> yeah well i guess this is on everybody's mind now and um yeah, it is yeah. uh, judging by the amount of misinformation that's mounting on every day it, 
we might as well all do that <laughs> or as many people as possible. Absolutely. Sure, and actually, sure. we would love to hear from uh, those initiatives from uh, coming from different countries across Europe, because it might be interesting. We have listeners from uh, all over Europe and uh, actually all over the world. Uh, so... It might be interesting for them uh, if uh, English is not their first language. Uh, they might be interested in knowing uh, what they can find in their own uh, mother tongue uh, to read. Yeah. And uh, this is why the Spanish, uh, some Spanish organizations, this time uh, it was propagated by uh, ARP, SAPC, the, one of the Spanish skeptical organizations, but it was actually compiled by the Spanish Association for Scientific Communication, uh, which is a website that they compiled about... Where to find and how how to look for uh, reliable information uh, online, and uh, what sources to trust, and what are those sources that might not be so trustworthy. So uh, yeah, go on. Uh, of course, we will link to that, and uh, uh, you'll be able to to check it out. And um, if you speak and understand Spanish, that will be a very useful tool for you too. All right, I think. Since we've got quite a packed episode, as usual, uh, recently, <laughs> uh, we should probably move on to our different segments. And the first segment that we usually run with is uh, This Week in Skepticism, presented by Yelena. But uh, this week, we will skip that. But instead, since we've got a distinguished guest here with us, Deborah Hyde. I'd like to ask you, Deborah, yes, to give us a bit of an overview of the history of quarantines. What else? These times that we live in. Yeah, well, seeing as we're going through it right now, we didn't really expect to, did we? I mean, who expected this to happen within their lifetime? Exactly. Basically, I think people have a very natural idea that things are contagious. Um, we have a sense of contagion with not just um, microorganisms, which, of course, we've only known about in the last hundred or so years, but just of the sense of evil, sense of badness. So the idea that there are miasmas or something that you can pass from one person to another is very ancient and very well established. So when you have that, an obvious way of stopping a disease spreading, an epidemic disease, is to try and isolate the people who are potentially infected. And that's what the definition of quarantine is. There are different kinds of isolation, and this, this is one. It's, it sort of tends to be an overused word, really. But from the earliest times, the, the word itself, the original, the original amount of time was uh, called Trentino. That was established in um, Dubrovnik in modern Croatia. It was on, in Dalmatia back in those days in the 14th century to do with the Black Death. But really, the word that we used, quarantine, comes from quarantina, which was used by the state of Venice, again, during the Black Death. And that meant 40 days. Now, there's been some research which suggests that the time averagely for Black Death in those days from infection to death was something like 37 days. So they did happen upon a good time uh, to isolate people, to stop them infecting other people. And they had things like green and yellow and even black flags, which would be on uh, ships to warn uh, to, because they were infected or because they were undergoing quarantine. Um, Venice was the first place, I think, that Black Death turned up in Europe. So they were very, very good about uh, taking measures against it. They appointed three guardians for public health um, first there, for example. So 
People have taken these measurements. There's also medical isolation, which is the infected kept separate from the healthy. With quarantine, you're not quite sure whether someone's infected or not. You think that they may be. They've been exposed and you just want to make sure they aren't. There's the modern, what we would call a cordon sanitaire, which is where you have an area and um, you put, you make sure that you control the traffic going in and out of it. So you're not necessarily cutting people off, but you're making sure that people take measures to stop the spread of any potential disease. So there are different ways of isolating people and of isolating populations in order to protect them, to either protect the people who are in there or protect the people outside who potentially could be um, affected. And, and also it's worth remembering that quarantine has been applied in the modern world to animals as well. In the UK, we had a law which stopped people bringing their dogs into the country, um, which that was effective until the year 2000. That was superseded by what they called a dog passport, where you just made sure that all of the the dog's um, vaccinations were up to date. Mm-hmm. But prior to that, you had to put your dog into quarantine for six months. Ooh. Six months. Oh, wow. Can wow. you imagine? Can you imagine over the lifetime of a dog, they live for 15 years? <laughs> so quarantine has a really <laughs> long established history. We see it in Mosaic Law in Chapter 13 of Leviticus, where there are various tests given for a disease which could potentially be leprosy. It's, it's how to tell the difference between a scab and leprosy. And you get inspected every seven days and you have to live apart from everybody else. So they quarantine both people and objects, um, imported objects like fabric and stuff like that. And as you would expect... There's a similar kind of rule in the Quran, um, which talks about separating the healthy from the contagious. And there's lots of examples in the Arab and Muslim world. And given that it was so technologically and scientifically advanced before Europe was, between the, the fall of the Roman Empire and the, the rise of the Renaissance, then that's you would expect an awful lot to have been written on these kinds of practices in the Arab world, and it was. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most famous accounts of quarantine that we have from the Black Death was from a town called Eam in Derbyshire in England. And it was a bit tragic, really, because in 1665, which was uh, one of the many outbreaks of Black Death that kept resurging through Europe from 1348 onwards, this village got a... There was a bolt of fabric sent to a tailor and it became apparent that the uh, the village was affected. So they shut themselves in, which was an incredibly noble thing to do. Estimates vary. It could be between a quarter and a half of people over the 14 months that this whole all took to play out died. But they did... They did very sensible things. They had uh, their rector, a guy called William Mompesson, did really ingenious things like for example they had little um little wells that they would put vinegar in and they would put the coins that they were paying for outside supplies in vinegar so that they were sterilizing their money oh. ah. so so things like that were, were actually really deserve a lot of credit it was a very early idea of of um sanitation and of of cleaning yourself, really. Without having the slightest idea of what caused the illness itself. Absolutely. This was ages before Robert Koch and... So that, that is what's, what's even more fascinating. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Wow. Um, so they were doing things... In fact, 
there was a case in uh, there was a famous vampire case with a guy <laughs> called Arnold Powell, which I read I read a recent case that suggested it was possibly anthrax, <laughs> and with that they had a sense mm-hmm. of contagion. They they thought this this the head vampire had died many years ago, and there was another outbreak of the same disease, and they still had a sense of contagion because they thought that the disease had continued through the cattle. So people do have this sense that something is dirty and that they have to provide a barrier. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, in Europe, there have been so many illnesses over the years which have needed quarantining for. I mean, we've, we've had yellow fever, uh, syphilis, um, cholera, the sweating sickness in the 16th century, which people still don't quite know what it was. Um, in, in Venice, they started to build little uh, quarantine places on islands. And in Marseille, which was the subject of a dreadful, probably the last most significant outbreak of Black Death in in, uh, Europe in 1721-2. That had social isolation too. So it really, you you know, people have got this idea, they've got this mechanism, they've got an idea of how important it is. Uh, And it has been institutionalised at various points. I mean, it's interesting though with the ethics of it because People suspected of carrying diseases have been forcibly quarantined. And probably the one that we all know about is Typhoid Mary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a woman called Mary Mallon in 1907, mm. and she was a cook and she carried typhoid without suffering from it. So she was asymptomatic. And she was told about this and said, they, they said, if you, as long as you promise not to cook for people, you can have your liberty. Well, either because she couldn't get another job or because she didn't care or because she just didn't believe it. She carried on getting work as a cook and she had to be removed from the community because there was no other way of stopping her being contagious. And typhoid is a very serious disease. So she was kept for nearly 24 years in medical isolation before she died. But it's happened very recently too as well. I mean, um, You think of a disease like Ebola, which is just so very, very vigorous. It acts quickly. It acts spectacularly. Very, very serious disease, um, far higher death rate than coronavirus. And um, there have been workers who've gone over to help look after um, Ebola patients in Africa. One called uh, Casey Hickox came back from Sierra Leone in 2014. She was a volunteer with Medicine Sans Frontières and she was tested negative for Ebola twice and she had no symptoms. But a main official went to court to try and bar her from crowded public places. Actually, I have to say, with something like Ebola, because it developed so quickly and so violently, Mm. the chances of her testing negative twice and then coming over and infected people were pretty mild. But she ended up spending three days in quarantine and she uh, she filed a suit in federal court against the state because she said that the quarantine violated her civil rights. Mm. So... In that case, the BBC reported in relation to that case that the UN Secretary Ban Ki-moon warned against unnecessarily strict restrictions on healthcare workers returning from West Africa because their efforts were critical in the fight against the, out- the outbreak. But I think it's interesting because it sheds light on the ethics of this whole area, especially given our modern sensibilities. You could probably have been a very authoritarian with a medieval village in a way that you can't 
with us, with a modern population. I've been reading all my plague books recently, just, you know, because you would. And was, <laughs> yeah, of course you do, yeah. Yeah, I, I recommend William McNeil, Plagues and Peoples, which is an absolute classic, and The Black Death by Philip Ziegler. But this particular quote I got from The Black Death by Robert S. Gottfried. And in Milan, they had a very effective board of health. Uh, and this was centuries ago, and they suffered less than other towns. But he said, a Milanese board member wrote um, that he was um, execrated by the ignorant populace. Now, I don't know what execrated is, but it doesn't sound good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And they, they... cared little for public health and kept saying there was no question of plague. Uh, Fed and imbued with such delusion, the populace began to slander the public health officials. And when by accident we walked through the narrow streets of the popular quarters, we were vilified with foul and unseemly words, and we were even pelted with stones. Hmm. So we're seeing a kind of a similar equivalence to that reaction, I think, in the United States at the moment, because people... I was just going to say, yeah. 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 Whether for reasons of really needing to get back to to work to live because the united states doesn't have the kind of social care that europe does or whether it, out of principle because they simply want to do what they want to do um there there is organized sort of movements against states lockdowns in the United States. And it's interesting because the modern guidance on how human rights can be restricted to prevent the spread of infectious disease um, is found in something called the Syracuse Principles. It's a non-binding document, but it was adopted by the United Nations Economic and Social Council in 1984. And it makes very good provisions, some of which apply to our modern lockdown. It says that the restrictions on human rights must meet standards of legality, evidence-based necessity, proportionality and gradualism. Um, so they, the limitations must respond to a real need, I mean, to, to a health need. And they must be proportionate um, and they must be the least restrictive means required to achieve the purpose of the limitation. And in addition, these restricted for actions must be well supported by data and scientific evidence. That's a great one for us skeptics. It is, because, yeah. Yeah, mm. because um, we really want all of this to be evidence-based. And the information must be made available to the public. You can't just have someone in charge saying, no, it's okay, I know better than you. <laughs> Finally, the state is ethically obligate, obligated to offer certain guarantees. One of them is that certain basic needs, such as food and water, while you're in quarantine... Uh, will be provided by the state. In our case, we're in lockdown, which is slightly different. Um, But also it says patients will be compensated fairly for economic and material losses, including salary. So I don't know how long our economies could do that for. Probably not much longer. So these, these, there are ethical issues involved in this. Hmm. That's right. And I don't, I don't, it's probably time for us to rethink our global values mm. uh, in an economic sense as well, right? Yes, absolutely. That you, yeah. just, you just uh, raised the question uh, how long the, the con- different countries might be able to keep that up. But yeah, we should we should probably rethink a couple of things about that. Well, I was going to say on, on that point, you know, the economic point and, and what's going to be the price we're going to pay or the world will pay for this lockdown. We don't know the implications on how, or how large or how bad they will be. And they might actually result in increased, you know, suicide rates because people don't have jobs and yeah. mm. are unable to pay for mm. for the rent and the food, uh, mental issues, you know, mental health issues, etc. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting 
point kind of to think about. Unfortunately, we just didn't have enough time to gather our thinking together before we had to say, okay, let's let's all stay at home and try to stop this from spreading. But It'll all come out in the wash, I suppose. But of course, these things are unknowable. They're so uncalculatable that you can't blame someone for advocating a lockdown. You all, you know, but economic depressions kill too. So I, yeah, exactly. we just don't know. We'll find out in the years to come. Yeah. And, and have, having tens of millions of people die as well, that also has economical consequences. All apart from the, the suffering, yeah. Yeah. it actually it, it destroys the, the economy as well. So It does, yeah. It's, yeah, so it's like if you're doomed if you do, if you're doomed if you don't. So. But then still, uh, going back to uh, the necessity of a lockdown or quarantining people, it hasn't ever happened on this scale so on a global scale because it's difficult to grasp uh, how important it is to keep this disease from spreading further and much further and affecting everyone because we don't have a first-hand experience with an epidemic of a global scale. And actually, there is an argument to be made that we're lucky it's this one. Yeah. Because the death rate, as unfortunate as it is for anyone who loses their lives or knows someone, the fact is the death rate is relatively small compared to an awful lot of diseases. So yeah. I think perhaps where a lot of governments might have been persuaded to be complacent, I know that um, the Trump government um, lessened funding to... Uh, their CDC liaisons, for example, um, in the last couple of years, then hopefully now people will take this seriously. These these things can happen and the chances of them happening are fairly small, but when they do, it can be catastrophic. Yeah. yeah. You know, one more thing I wanted to ask you, Deborah, about uh, quarantines, mm-hmm. that uh, you know so many stories of werewolves and vampires. In a way, aren't they considered in the societies that they they have an effect on uh, some kind of a disease-like phenomenon like if you get bitten by a werewolf you will become one yourself and the same with vampires so were there any attempts historically to isolate those people that were thought to have been bitten by these creatures? That's an interesting question because werewolfism, yeah, the the, the contagion... it was thought to extend to that. And, and if you're bitten by a rabid dog, then you do have a reasonable chance of getting rabies. That's right. With vampires specifically, uh, the vampire folklore is very, very much associated with epidemics. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that uh, the vampire is causing the death rather than the epidemic vector, whatever, whatever that happens to be. And what you, I always say that Epidemics produce a need for scapegoats. They produce a need for control. People would so be true. quite happy to sign on to a simple solution just because it helps them to feel in, in control. And so, really, if you're scapegoating someone who's dead, whose corpse you're desecrating, that's infinitely better than burning your town's Jews, for example. Um, and yeah, slightly better, yeah. And that happened. I mean, that's, you know, that happened plenty of times in medieval Europe. Yeah. So you see the same scapegoat mechanism happening um, in, in relation to dead bodies during epidemics. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Deborah. For, for that brief overview, yeah. I think it's definitely worth talking about that. And it's fascinating how historical links can be made. Uh, but 
we are moving on to our next segment, which is the usual time when Pontus pokes the Pope. <laughs> All right, so slight shift of topic here now. So I guess it was just a matter of time, but after being released from jail, uh, Cardinal George Pell couldn't stay silent. He just had to tell his story. And the problem with that, of course, is that mainstream media don't really want to touch him with a 10-foot pole. So now he's teaming up with the right-wing nutjob media instead. So last week he had himself interviewed in, on something called The Bolt Report on the Australian Sky News Network, and it was, frankly appalling to watch I, I took one for the team here I, I, I sat through the whole thing <laughs> well done <laughs> and it was really painful very much appreciated yeah yeah I, I wasn't aware of uh, Andrew Bolt and his Bolt report before have, have you heard of him before not really no 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 doesn't ring the bell I guess it's a more of an Australian phenomenon you know they can have him <laughs> uh, <laughs> He has, uh, Andrew Bolt has, uh, for instance, recently covered how the quote-unquote police state of Australia causes much more harm by restrictions uh, than the current pandemic does, and how it's quite right for Trump to defund the WHO for doing a bad job just when we need them the most. So at the same time, he's saying everything is fine, no lockdown is needed, but also WHO, who has to be held responsible for the disaster that he just said didn't really happen. The interview with Pell is devilishly executed, though, because Bolt is proposing one wild conspiracy theory after another in the interview, while Pell can play the rational one, downplaying the worst ideas and still letting the audience understand that there's so many nefarious forces after him, uh, but Pell himself is, be is beyond saying that. He lets Bolt say that instead. So here's a, a short clip that I want to just to illustrate how, uh, how it sounds. And this is uh, Andrew Bolt starting and then it is um, Pell replying. Police did not investigate, did not interview one single witness. They just accepted the boy's word. I ask you again, does it not seem to you that the police had an agenda to get you? Well, I don't know how you explain it, but it is certainly extraordinary. Well, <laughs> you get the idea, I think. So, so uh, Bolt is saying that, you know, he's ventilating these conspiracy theories and Pell is saying, well, I don't really know, but it sounds very strange. You know, that, that's the whole full hour there. Yeah, he's playing the good guy. Yeah, he's yeah, playing yeah. along, right. Yeah, so, um, and, and this is very shrewd of Pell because later he will be able to say that he has never proposed these ideas. He's yeah. never explicitly said that he was, uh, there was a witch hound, etc. But he's not really saying it wasn't. Uh, and there's more than one conspiracy uh, theory suggested. One is the administration of Victoria in Australia, um, where the trial was held. And another is left-wing activists within the Catholic Church. And then, for, as you heard, some, for some reason, the police department keeps inventing new baseless accusations, advertising for new victims to come forward, which they did. They did advertise. And of course... They did that. 
That's normal in cases like this. You want to find everyone who's been a victim so that you can talk for everyone and get help everyone. And sex abuse of this nature is rarely a question of one victim. In this case, we're talking about serial offenders, so you have to reach out to the public. Uh, and also, revoltingly, Pell describes himself as having done a fantastic job in stopping abuse within the church in the 90s already. He actually said that. I stopped it. And then he heard how that sounded and he had to backtrack a little bit and say, well, it's no longer a big problem anymore in the church. And, and it was his doing. Um, so and then he concludes at the end saying he will now go into semi-retirement. But he will help out where he can, which means that he pro we probably haven't heard the last of him yet. So that can mean, based on his history with uh, helping out where he can, is that we could probably help others who have committed something inappropriate to get away with it? I, I, I don't know. I, don't, I, I think he actually he's smart enough to try to stay clear of that topic altogether but he did say he will probably go back to rome for a while it's i must he's still he's still a cardinal and he he still haven't given up his career i think does him saying that he fought hard to get the levels of child abuse down mean that they're now down to acceptable levels he certainly implied that yes yes <laughs> thanks to him this is no longer a big problem in the catholic church yeah of course not wow why would it be yeah. So, well, okay, that's about Pell. This segment is actually supposed to be about the Pope, so maybe I should mention him as well a little bit. <laughs> he, he is very wisely ignoring Pell right now, uh, but he is instead continuing to be very embarrassed with how useless the church has turned out to be in these <laughs> pandemic uh, times. Not much to offer there. Frankie said the other day that the current situation with people not being able to go to church is very dangerous because people could start having their own relationship with God just for themselves. <laughs> Here is a thought. <laughs> you know, detached from the quote-unquote people of God. And we know who the people of God is. That That's the Catholic Church. And also... It is very dangerous for people to be without the, the sacraments. He, he repeated that again, especially communion. That's dangerous for some well, reason. Well, I can see Andras uh, drinking red wine from here. So that means... <laughs> no, it's blood. It's I blood. have my personal relationship with God through red wine. That's Fair uh, enough. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. Blood of Christ, that is. Right. <laughs> so what I've been saying actually a couple of times over the last month or so, the danger is not for the people's souls, I believe. It's the danger is for him that the church will become less uh, relevant and people will find out that they can do without the church. Either they can find a personal relationship with God or even worse, they will realize that the church has nothing to offer at all and God has nothing to offer at all. So, so this is a crisis for, for the Catholic Church and he feels it. You know, the thinking is something that I don't get, that if God is willing to talk to someone personally, mm -hmm. who is it dangerous to? That, that that they have that link? Yeah, no, no, I think it would it'd be great. Cut out the middleman, I'm all for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, God spoke to Martin Luther and that kind of screwed things up for the Catholic Church a bit, so... Oh, yeah. That, oh, yeah. That, dangerous yeah, precedent okay, there, yeah. yeah, yeah. Maybe that's the, he, what he's afraid of, a new Protestant movement. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and especially that we know for a fact that whenever there's a middleman in the chain of passing on information it always gets distorted. Mm. So we need to find the original source. So good luck, 
making connection with God and ignore the Pope. Yeah, yeah. He's a, but, he's a fraud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's what I had on the Pope this week. <laughs> Thank you very much, Pontus. Okay. Uh, we've talked a lot about uh, COVID-19, and we usually start our news segment with a COVID-19 update, but uh, this week we decided to start something else. Uh, we separate a COVID-19 update part from the news because that's a little bit different. So here we go. Let's talk about COVID-19. Okay, let's start with the numbers. We are over 2.4 million right now. Yelena, you will start to protest yeah. because the overall death rate is now 6.8%. But that means that the death rate among those who have got tested. Yes. So that is uh, a very important distinction to be made. But 25.7% of people who, who tested positive have recovered so far. It appears that new infections have leveled off in some countries across Europe, which raises new questions as to what the next steps ahead are. But first, where are we at now? Uh, the number of tests performed uh, seems to be accelerating for most of the countries as uh, the, the availability of tests is getting better. Uh, with a couple of examples to the contrary, though, but the problem is the testing capacity, especially with regards to human resources. So there are not enough people to conduct those tests. So this is why we don't see that much acceleration in testing. And some some countries decided to to not perform those that many tests. Some countries have a tendency to uh, accelerate the, the, the testing rate. The charts did not change much in that regard since last week, though. But since the number of tests per confirmed case, which is a very important connection to me to be made, varies significantly among countries. Uh, the reliability of the data is far from what I'd call good. So uh, what I'm going to say now should be taken in with all that in mind. Well, Countries like Malta, it seems that it's over soon for them. But with a country of a couple of hundred thousand people, uh, a disease can only run its course for so long, right? So uh, that's not very surprising. But in Austria and Iceland, the, the number of new and active cases seems to be dropping very fast. Denmark has a significantly decreasing number of active cases, uh, so much so that uh, they are opening up their schools for young children in the next coming next couple of days so that will be something that we go back to Denmark, uh, we talked about. Croatia's numbers are also de uh, decreasing. One of the most important measures, namely the number of daily new cases, seems to be going down in Italy, France, Germany, Belgium, Switzerland, Denmark, Czech Republic, Luxembourg and uh, Greece. And even though Lithuania seemed for a little while to be out of the woods, the case count has started rising again. We don't know exactly what happened, but there are countries with a stable number of daily new cases, but no significant decrease in them. Uh, those are the UK, the Netherlands, Portugal, Ireland, Sweden, Romania, Norway, Serbia, Finland, Estonia, Slovenia, and Cyprus. 
Meanwhile, Russia is now in the worst phase of the the epidemic, mm. with case count increasing steadily, and Poland also has a rising number of new cases, just like Ukraine and Hungary. <laughs> wow! So we are welcome to the match. Yeah, among the worst. <laughs> Something to be happy. <laughs> just as usual. The plague pit of Europe. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, thank God we we get recognized for something. Um, <laughs> so oh Slovakia boy. and Bulgaria are doing somewhat similar too, but uh, those those numbers are are really interesting. So for those um, interested in checking out charts and numbers and lists, I do recommend checking out Worldometers or ourworldindata.org because those provide a lot of very good information. But all this was to give you an idea of how much we are very far from over the worst part of it, despite some news outlets claiming that, uh, that we are almost out of the woods. We are definitely not. Yeah, and don't forget Trump. He's also claiming that's over. <laughs> yeah, because all he cares about is the economy. All he cares about is his money. Because that's what he bets everything on. <laughs> but health experts warn us not to expect for our lives to get back to normal just yet, unless we want to see the situation worsen by a second wave, of course. I can't see how a second wave is avoidable, to be honest. Neither can I. I agree. I don't think it is. Yeah, I agree. I don't think it is until... Yeah. Until there is a vaccine. Yeah. yeah. That'll be some time. Which is next, next year, right? So. Yes. Uh, we have no idea when. Best case. So the first, the first clinical trials for, a va- for vaccines are about to start, but it doesn't mean that there will be a vaccine ready anytime soon. So it might be so far out that we, it, we have no idea when they can be used. Obviously, when there is something that ha- has been found effective, in stopping the, vi- the the virus from spreading, obviously it will be marketed like crazy. So everyone will jump right on it. But until then, we're not safe. And all things considered, the sensible thing to do is, or would be, to wait for a vaccine to be out and available before we try to go back to business as usual. But of course, that is unacceptable from an economic point of view, right? And hmm. by the way, are we really... To go back to business as usual, shouldn't we learn a few lessons first? Mm-hmm. Uh, draw the consequences before we, we do that. Yeah. Interestingly, there are a lot of uh, different ways to implement a bit of a shift back to normal life, and one of those uh, comes from the German uh, foreign minister Heiko Maas, who proposed a smartphone app to be developed that could track people's movements across the EU. But it needs to be a joint effort with both public health and personal privacy matters taken into account. Mm. It, the idea probably comes from China, where when they they reopened Wuhan, they started using phone apps to try to assess the number of uh, connections and the number of and the rate of exposure to, uh, after the the release of uh, of people back into the wild so so to speak <laughs> so we want to minimize connection between uh infected and non-infected people to avoid a second wave and there are places where a second wave seems to be happening as we speak so it's it's really far from over european leaders try to reopen their countries and kickstart their economies while keeping a close eye on development of the pandemic that's a good thing but easing restrictions is very risky 
So Austria is now reopening stores. Uh, Denmark does the same. Uh, and there are several other countries where it's happening. But we have to understand that economic versus public health risk both have to be evaluated carefully. And, and it's important to leaders not to succumb to pressure coming from newspapers and the public uh, or companies in if, if the right course of action has not been laid in by the experts yet. So experts should have the first say in everything that we talk. And obviously, um, economic experts are being consulted as well. So don't don't get me wrong. That's important too because we 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 talked about that earlier. That e- economic stress can have terrible consequences, even even losses of life, uh, lots of them. So that's that's important. But this is why an international effort, uh, joint effort, should be made by different countries and the best uh, group of experts who can lead these efforts are sitting in the UN and especially WHO. And this is the time when Trump decides to hold WHO funding. <laughs> and uh, obviously it was met with uh, with an international outcry. So it's uh, around half a billion dollars that we're talking about. It's the, the greatest chunk of the budget of WHO. And he does it in the middle of a global crisis. And they claim, the White House claims, that there was an agreement about the mismanagement of the situation on the the WHO's part. But when other G7 leaders were asked about that, they seemed to disagree. (laughs) Four of them are European countries, of course. uh, France, uh, the UK, Italy, and Germany. And they all agreed that the first task ahead of us is to tackle the crisis. And then afterwards, we can discuss if it has been dealt with properly or there there were issues that, that could have been dealt with uh, in a much more efficient way. But that analysis should come afterwards. Of course. So first, work on the crisis. And if the WHO goes bankrupt in the middle of a global crisis, it can have devastating effects. Yeah. Uh, they, mm. they are leading this, this global effort now. Criticism is something that the WHO, I think, deserves for a lot of things. We have criticized them. Exactly. We even gave them a really wrong price. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure they felt it too. (laughs) But I don't think that uh, Donald Trump listens to this show. And I don't see a connection between his cutting the funding and our criticism towards WHO. <laughs> he thinks that he think it's like anything in his world. You know, if you're not happy with a supplier, you don't pay them. And that's that's his solution to everything. And by the way, he doesn't pay suppliers that perform well either. But yeah, exactly. That's another thing. Or it's as if maybe somebody uh, was asking for that money and he's like, where can I get it? I'll just cut the funding. So, you know, there's yeah. all sorts of conspiracies yeah. we can start <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> spinning. But I think yeah. we all agree that this is a clear demonstration of what what a douchebag Trump is and stupid, and how he's completely unable to handle a crisis like a real leader. And we see very good examples around the world of yeah. dealing with this situation uh, properly. So a deep and thorough investigation into all those is not wisely timed in the middle of a crisis. We agree on that. The priority then is to face and tackle the issue at hand. Uh, then assess this, the effectivity of the actions and what conclusions can be drawn from them to avoid mistakes in the future. And even then, if we want to criticize, it should be constructive. Yes. Simply cutting funds and especially for short-term political gain or not even that, just simply for our own incompetence 
is completely unacceptable. And there are a lot of things that WHO has done right as well. Uh, debunking myths about the coronavirus that every country can use and translate into their own language. And uh, providing general advice, uh, for example, how alcohol should be avoided because it doesn't provide protection against the virus. So I disagree with that. Oh, there goes my weekend. I don't subscribe on it. So, you know, that uh, will criticize WHO for. <laughs> with that in mind, I say cheers to him. And uh, here, here's to a better future and uh, here's to a quick recovery. If anything, I find myself drinking more during this, w, uh, the, during this oh, cr- yeah. crisis. Sales of alcohol in Sweden has gone up. I'm think I think that's the same everywhere. Yeah, right? yep. yeah, yeah. Mm. Actually, the WHO and and they will get a lot of criticism for that because they are advocating <laughs> that access to alcohol in different countries should be restricted. <laughs> Come on, that's outrageous. I don't bloody think so. But what about yeah. stress levels? Alcohol is good for stress. Actually, it's therapeutic. Actually, uh, yeah, that's a myth. Uh, actually, myth. there is. <laughs> it isn't. It isn't. <laughs> in the long run, it doesn't. It doesn't really help. That I think we agree on that. And it's funny that they put together an infographic as well about alcohol consumption and how probably we should get a bit bit less of alcohol. And <laughs> it even includes the statement that it doesn't solve our problems. Disappointing. Yeah, but you don't have to think about them anymore. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> with no neurons left in your brains, <laughs> you have nothing to think with. <laughs> Well, I, I think there yeah, should be very right. good alcohol information out there because last month the Iranian media reported that more than 300 people had died and a 1,000 um, got sick in the country because they ingested methanol oh, uh, oh. against um, COVID-19. And it's the uh, you know, we can only have one kind of alcohol, human beings, that's ethanol. So they, they got all that wrong. And even with that, we should be careful. Mm. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's true. All right. It's now really time for us to turn towards the news items. Deborah. Yes. What's going on in the UK? Well, various things going on in the UK. We have, um, well, I, I was looking at uh, the the website of Ed, Ed Zadernst mm-hmm. recently, just today, and his latest blog post, he's mentioned a Dr. Elizabeth Thompson, who's a National Centre for Integrative Medicine, holistic doctor um, and clinical lead. She is a medical doctor too, though. Oh, wow. And she's had the coronavirus and she recommends home- homeopathy to help with it. Now, she's done a letter on her website and a video, and this is really, really worrying because there are people who aren't just going to her for alternative therapies. They are presumably going to her for medicine that works as well. And and so people could conflate the the message that, or get the message wrong. Professor Ernst said, I know Dr. Thompson personally for many years. She's one of the UK's leading homeopaths and we rarely agreed on anything. <laughs> Yet I'd always considered her, obviously, <laughs> to be on the responsible side of the homeopathic spectrum. I'm sorry to say that I just changed my mind. Ooh. And it is stunning to watch this video. Um, she's advising various kind of tinctures to take for the various sorts of symptoms that you get with, um, with COVID. Now, you would think that as a doctor, she would realise that some people get this very badly indeed. 
and some people get off fairly lightly. And to attribute a causal relationship between her having had a fairly mild dose of this with her taking of homeopathy is, as we all know as sceptics, is just anecdotal. That It's not scientific at all. And when you're in a position where you have influence because you've got patients, this is very irresponsible and Professor Ernst thinks so too. On her video, she said homeopathy can be so useful when we don't have many conventional treatments to hand. Um, Such a stupid... uh, I've heard that from others than than homeopaths as well. So, so, well, nothing else is working, so you might as well try my magical tea. Well, you might as well eat marshmallows or drink mint tea or something. I mean, you know, it's... it's, Or red wine. Or red wine, yeah. Um, And I I think just in case anyone has accidentally stumbled upon this recording and uh, is in any doubt about the kind of message that we have here, I'll I'll quote Professor Ernst. He said, I find this amazing and alarming. There is, of course, not a jot of evidence that any homeopathic treatment will effectively treat or prevent any viral infection and certainly no evidence that it cures coronavirus infections. Mm. Right. You know what? I've also read Edsard Ernst's blog, and you know what else doesn't work against the coronavirus? That is traditional Chinese medicine, or TCM. You don't say. (laughs) (laughs) So there is a um, new study out there uh, that shows a a lot of things when when it comes to the coronavirus and what uh, physicians are using to try to combat it. And among those are TCM, or traditional Chinese medicine. It's very different in different parts of the world, as you can imagine, where this is used by, and this is by sort of quote-unquote real doctors. 67% of the medications prescribed in China by doctors are uh, traditional Chinese medicine, which is not so surprising, perhaps. It's different. It's, of course, more in Asia than in the rest of the world. It's 10% of the medications in Korea, Taiwan, and Japan that is prescribed is uh, TCM. And it's much less in other parts of the world, but 2% in in Europe as a whole, and 3% in the rest of the world. US, Jelena, is only 1%. So that surprised me a little bit that uh, <laughs> oh, it was lower yeah. than in the rest of the world. I um, bet you they're not prescribing much pangolin or bat at the moment. That may have gone out of fashion lately, yes. Cook it well first. But also, Pontus, I want to comment on something, actually, that we discovered recently. Some Mm -hmm. of the medications that you have to have prescription for in Europe, they just sell you over the counter in America. Yes, that's that's true. It's the same with Canada. Yeah. Yeah. But I I don't know how it is everywhere, but in Sweden, as a... As a doctor, you can prescribe even things that you don't need a prescription for. So, uh, oh, I okay, yeah, and then you get it at a discount. All right. So, Edsard Ernst speculates, and I agree with him, that the spread over the globe of TCM has probably been influenced by the close ties between the Chinese authorities and WHO, and we talked about that before we we do sometimes criticize who because they have been influenced quite a lot by the chinese authorities or you can suspect that at least but even if you look in in europe it's different in different european countries three percent is the number for italy but it's zero percent in the uk and and in germany Uh, so uh, i I guess in germany where they have their globally instead the homeopathic remedies then maybe they go to that 
And, um, and there could be regulatory differences too, so that in some countries there are restrictions of what you can prescribe. Sweden isn't mentioned in the list, but I would expect it to be very low, zero probably. I mean, as you said, Jelena, people still use it, but it's not prescribed as such. You, you have to, you go to, to special stores and you buy it over the counter. How about Hungary? What do you, would you say, uh, uh, Andras? I, I don't have the, the... You can make up any number because it wasn't mentioned specifically in the study. This study was done by a Sermo.com. Yeah. It's self-reporting by by uh, healthcare professionals, uh, thousands of healthcare professionals all, all over the world. Yes. They claim that 30 countries are involved in that. So I don't know how reliable that data is, but uh, no. I have no freaking idea of what the case is in Hungary because apparently there is no data that uh, available uh, from, from my country. But I can tell you that uh, my GP has on occasion prescribed homeopathic medicine uh, a product for me really and uh, yes there were two occasions when i didn't realize until i got to the pharmacy <laughs> and then i got furious when i saw that that i was prescribed homeopathic product yeah. so so it happens yeah, yeah. it does it, it does happens. happen but i have no yeah. idea to what scale yeah yeah but you're right the, the, you and ed Sardernst points that out as well that this study you need to take it with a grain of salt because yeah. It is self-reported and uh, the actual data isn't, I think, uh, published. It's just the, the, the findings. So, yeah. But uh, it's interesting to think that a lot of GPs are actually prescribing traditional Chinese medicine. Maybe because there's nothing else to prescribe because we don't know. We don't have a lot of medications that are proven to help against uh, COVID-19. Yeah. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> yeah. So I have non-COVID-related news, uh, finally. Always welcome. First one <laughs> uh, from Spain. I'm hoping to see more of that uh, coming up as we staying at home and reorganizing our life. The This particular uh, news item comes from Science Networks uh, organization. And they were going to have um, an event prior to the COVID, but now, of course, everybody's staying at home. And instead of canceling event, this event, they are moving it online, which is excellent news. And I'm so glad to see it. Um, this event, uh, the Science Network um, event, will be happening on April 29 and April 30th. Um, they will be um, streaming it on YouTube channel, as well as... Um, They'll be active on the Twitter account as well. So uh, I'm assuming so that people can submit questions and interact with them that way. Um, so what they did is that they published the program uh, for this online event um, on their website. Uh, just approximate times of when they're going to start, uh, who's going to be speaking, um, etc. And as I said, I think it's the first of many we're going to see. Let's not give up on, yeah. on events like this. Let's Let's carry on. Maybe... QED will be online. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right. Another non-COVID-related uh, uh, news item here. Uh, even though many forms of alternative medicinal treatments have already been proven not to work beyond placebo, there are those who insist that there is still something to learn about them and keep conducting clinical studies. 
Not necessarily good ones, though, at least not in the sense of how rigorous a protocol we would expect them to work through. And meta-analyses conducted on such studies show that the more rigorous the methodology, the less likely they show a positive outcome for CAM treatment. A recent article published in the European Clinical Respiratory Journal and found by Professor Edzard Ernst again, <laughs> again. <laughs> seems to be a bit of an exception. The authors are all from Denmark, uh, representing two different hospitals and a university institute. Uh, one of them is a global medical expert, and there's one who practices reflexology, who acted as a complementary and alternative medicine CAM consultant during the study. They attempted to determine whether reflexology and homeopathy can have any impact on markers of airway inflammation when added to conventional asthma treatment. The trial went on for a year with 84 patients randomly selected to get either conventional treatment alone, conventional treatment complemented with homeopathy, or complemented with reflexology. Now, the determination of clinical outcome was sound, I have to say, as they measured typical inflammation markers at the beginning and then in two weeks uh, and 26 weeks and 52 weeks into the study. The whole study was a single-center investigator-blinded controlled trial, which doesn't give it much credit to start with. Single-center studies are usually not taken very seriously, for there are very low patient numbers usually, but this one was relatively high for this type of studies, with 84. But no patient, no practitioner was really blinded in any way. Only the investigators were unaware of who got the, uh, what treatment. The homeopathy group went to consultations and the treatments were performed by the Danish Society of Classical Homeopathy on an individual basis mm. with high-potency stuff like C30 and M10. Mm. Now, C30 is, uh, as you explained last week, Pontus, it's, uh, yeah. they diluted 1 to 130 times, that's C30. And M10 is when they uh, dilute it uh, one to a thousand and do it ten times. So it's it's very similar. Uh, the reflexology treatments of manipulating extremities to attempt to influence patients' health were provided by two practitioners recommended by the Danish Reflexology Association. So the researchers really gave the upper hand to chem practitioners, I have to say. And no room for complaint from their end, I, ha I believe. However... Neither the blood tests for eosinophil count and serum eosinophil cationic protein measurements nor the exhaled nitric oxide tests have shown any significant difference between the different groups over this one-year period. So once again, it was shown if on a somewhat poorly designed study that when objective markers of improvement are measured, real effects should not be expected from so-called alternative medicinal treatments. Even the authors themselves concluded that, and I quote, this randomized controlled study of reflexology and homeopathy failed to show significant improvement on selected markers of inflammation and airway hyperresponsiveness in asthma, end quote. That was remarkably honest of them. Exactly. Especially because that there were practitioners involved in the studies. So they are among the, the authors of the study as well. Uh, some of them. So they really consulted this. They really t took it very seriously, but they wanted to test this. 
and the outcome is negative. I have to say that the protocol is still very poor. Mm. It's interesting this week, Facebook um, is going to warn users who interacted with coronavirus hoaxes. This has been noted uh, on Snopes. They had the permission. They haven't done the original research themselves, but they had the permission to reprint an article from the Associated Press um, saying that Facebook is, um, is going to let you know if you've shared or interacted with the dangerous coronavirus misinformation on the site. So that's really good. And then the original information will be removed by moderators. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll direct the alert, which is going to start on Facebook in the coming weeks, will direct users to a site where the World Health Organization lists and debunks virus myths and rumours. So it's constructive as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like a lot of social media, Facebook, Google and Twitter, are introducing stricter rules uh, and altered al- algorithms to have to look at these fact checks to stop the spread of misinformation online. Mark Zuckerberg said last week, throughout the crisis, one of my top priorities is making sure you see accurate and authoritative information across all of our apps. Of course, one of the problems is that with this coronavirus situation that we're in now, really it has to be an automated system because an awful lot of the human moderators who Facebook would employ have gone home. So it, the, the, the automated system may not pick up every appropriate usage, uh, but nonetheless, it's better than nothing. And um, uh, Baybars Orsec of the International Fact-Checking Network um, did give the warning that Facebook data should be reviewed by outside editors or e- experts, um, and especially because Facebook has this kind of historical a secretive sort of a culture, I think, that people would be very comforted if they were very open about how they spotted the misinformation in this particular campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, they've also done something positive, which is sceptics, I think, we can really engage with because we know that giving something positive is constructive, giving somebody a, a positive message instead of just telling them that they're daft or tearing their worldview down. So Facebook will start promoting the articles that debunk COVID-19 misinformation. Um, And the new information centre is called Get the Facts. So hopefully people will be exposed to productive, to constructive information uh, about this condition. Obviously, this is a time when conspiracy theories abound. So Mm. information about unverified treatments and all that kind of thing. It's going to be a time for that. So engaging social media on this kind of thing is is really important. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there are lots of quacks, of course, and uh, some of them are selling, of course, stupid nonsense. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about several Swedish cranks that did so. But it's even more alarming when such things are being promoted by doctors and people with a PhD behind their names. Yes. So... Uh, The latest here is a supplement sold by a few real doctors backed up by a company called Protecta. On the board of Protecta is a man called Anders Milton, who has been active in the Red Cross, the Swedish Medical Union, and also has been a government advisor, no less, on on medical matters. When what this company has sold, and it's now been stopped, of course, is a substance containing zinc. Uh, after somebody had noticed that zinc can destroy SARS-CoV-2 virus in a Petri dish, 
<laughs> but of course, that doesn't mean that the same thing is happening in the human body. Uh, that's nonsense. And a, a trained... Are we different from Petri dish, though? A little bit, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could probably kill the virus with petrol in a Petri dish, couldn't you? Just... <laughs> yeah. Anything, so... yes. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, so trained medical doctors should really know better than that. And they got the whole thing backwards, including the name of the supplement, Anorok, which, if you haven't noticed, spells Corona backwards. That's oh. <laughs> so, a very transparent But it, it sounds, sounds more like a, a Nordic god. Yeah, or a anorok. Yeah. Yeah, or so, some sort of garment. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Anorak. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So guess what? What a blog I was reading as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not saying. Edzard Ernst. But no, but he's doing a great job and he's pulling together um, great information. This one again, not nothing to do with COVID nineteen. He's referring to John Ioannidis's published paper about uh, his um, review of 100 best-selling books that discuss nutritional advice. And somewhat expected, there is no cohesion in any of those books. Uh, there is no consistency in advices that given in any of those 100 books. And um, what he did, um, on top of, of course, um, diving into the a context of the books, um, say, you know, looking at what advice they give, what diets they suggest, etc. He looked at authors themselves, who wrote those books. And it's a very interesting little graph. He, pu he published it on his website that we're going to link to. Basically, the 100 books that he analyzed were written by 83 distinct authors. Out of these 83 distinct authors, only 33% were MD. And then there's various, uh, 7% had, had high school diploma, 20% had college degree, um, only 6% were PhD, and then there, there were 9% other and another 9% he couldn't find any information for. But the occupation, check this out, <laughs> the 33% that I've referred to were physicians with a uh, proper degree. And then, you know, it's free for all. Mm. Editors, entrepreneurs, personal trainers, actor, blogger, <laughs> um, journalist, TV personality, psychologist, uh, all telling us what to eat and how to eat and what's good for your uh, diet. Is that something? And of course, uh, none of these books agreed on anything. <laughs> so some books say eat meat, some books say don't eat meat, some suggest that fa uh, high fat food is good for you, some suggest high fat, high, low fat food uh, is good for you. Uh, suggesting that eating bread and pasta and potato will make you happy and live longer life, which I totally subscribe to that claim, by the way. <laughs> so basically, not surprising at all uh, to, to see that. It's, it's, uh, it's the first time I've seen kind of this uh, representation of the percentages of, of the education across the board of, of the writers of the book. And also what it kind of highlighted for me personally was I, I never was big on buying the um, those sort of uh, books that claim to know what's the best diet and what to do to lose weight and live happy, uh, happily ever after. And now I know why it was a good idea not to, unless, of course, it is written by the proper dietitian, uh, a person with the proper qualifications. Not somebody like Gwyneth Paltrow, who is advising you to do certain things. So, um, interesting read and uh, just kind of made me chuckle a little bit, but also 
scary because people do take advice from these. These are best-selling, therefore a lot of people read them. So um, we just want to try yeah. to promote that and say, hey. I'm very much looking forward to the day that a qualified dietitian publishes the uh, the chocolate and pasta diet book because <laughs> I think <laughs> I think we'd all like to buy that one, right? We yeah? should do that. <laughs> we should do that. The ESP pasta and chocolate book. That would be fine. Don't forget red wine as well. But wasn't <laughs> of course red isn't wine. isn't it something that we all kind of do? Well, I certainly do that. Uh, I can tell on the top for myself. Um, you know, when when a new study comes out, especially about alcohol, uh, and you see this this uh, headline saying drinking red wine is good for you, <laughs> doesn't it make you go, oh, <laughs> I knew it is, <laughs> <laughs> even though it's a lot of rubbish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, talking about headlines, if if I wanted to start the next item with a headline, it would go something like this. Natalie Grams to retire from being the Amazon she is in the fight against quackery. Ooh. Yeah, unfortunately, the news have been confirmed by several sources, there, including the uh, GVOP, the German Skeptical Organization, and Natalie herself on her Twitter account, that uh, she is uh, going to uh, go back to um, uh, practicing medicine. I don't think Natalie Grams needs an introduction to our listeners. We interviewed her on episode 42 and has mentioned her brilliant work like a million times ever since. <laughs> but for those who have not been listening to us for that long, let me just say that the general opinion among skeptics all over Europe and probably the world is that she's one of the greatest heroes out there for having the courage to go against what used to be her livelihood and follow the science and her conscience instead. That's huge. We only know of a handful of people like that. And for some weird reason, the first three that comes to mind from the field of medicine are all connected somehow to Germany. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about Edzard Ernst, whom we mentioned a couple of times today, mm -hmm. who was born in Germany and practiced alternative medicine until he realized the science is clear and it's all BS. Britt-Marie Hermes, who's an American naturopath turned skeptic, who happens to live in Germany, and of course, Natalie Grams. Mm. Grams is a physician and had been a homeopath until she realized, while doing some research in order to defend defend her treatments against its critics, that scientifically speaking, homeopathy doesn't hold water. Well, it does only hold water, actually. <laughs> uh, it, does, it does a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and since then, she has become not only an ardent critic of this particular form of alternative nonsense, but the leading figure in Germany for educating the general public about it. She partnered up with GVOP and they launched Information Network Homeopathy with Norbert and Susanne Aust and a lot of others. We interviewed Norbert Aust as well. And they have been very active online and in national media across Germany and Austria in the last couple of years, they were providing a lot of good material uh, as well in the process, even in English. Of course, the link will be provided to their website in the show notes. But why I wanted to talk about her is that she seems to be leaving the battlefield, which is not a retreat, but instead she wants to go back to practicing medicine. Why she started this profession in the first place, yeah, helping sure. people. I completely yeah. understand that, but I have to say that the movement will still be at a loss without her. We are all very grateful yeah. for what she has done in the years she's been an active skeptic. Apart from appearing regularly on TV and being the spokesperson for, for the INH, uh, she has a serious follower base on Twitter and has written several books. One of them, Homeopathy Reconsidered, 
is even available in English. It is a recommended read, by the way. Mm. Uh, thankfully, she says she will not completely stop doing the educational work. Uh, and she has a couple of things still in the pipeline. So she will continue doing her podcast and her regular columns as well. But her main focus will shift back to being a physician. Thanks for the great work you've done so far, Natalie. Yeah. And we wish you all the best for your future plans. Yeah, thanks, Natalie. Hero. Here, here. The ARP Society for Advancement of Critical Thinking um, have published an article recently uh, about the first Mario Rodriguez Theatre Award for the uh, authors who create a theatre piece uh, that criticizes uh, pseudotherapies. This is a new one for, for me. Certainly, I, mm -hmm, I haven't yeah. heard of that before. Yeah. The, and it's an excellent, excellent idea. So not only uh, do you then publish articles, do, do talks and speeches, blah, 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 but you also create theater pieces and plays around um, criticizing pseudoscience. Excellent. So there'll be two awards that will be awarded next year. So one is Mario Rodriguez Theater Award, and the other one is Mario Rodriguez Theater Award for high school students. So the first one is for authors over 18 years uh, old that reside in Spain. And of course, um, the, the play or whatever the theater piece is must be done in Spanish. And um, the winner of this prize will get 1,500 euros and a little statuette. Uh, and of course, there'll be a write-up about the piece. And um, for the high school students, the um, student have to, again, reside in Spain, study uh, for the bachelorette uh, in the same pre period of presentation of the works to this contest. So and each student can only compete uh, one time. So I'd encourage Spanish listeners to go ahead and check it out. Um, it's a Julian Rodriguez editorial website and see if they know of anyone who'd be interested to do something like that, or maybe they'll inspire someone who never thought of that to do uh, a theater piece, and uh, maybe they'll win the prize. Yeah. Mm. Who knows? Good. And last but not least, Chicup, the Italian skeptical organization, which is one of the largest communities of skeptics in Europe, along with the German GVOP and the Swedish VOF. Uh, they have joined the select few who decided to move as many of their events online as possible. And not only that, they, are, they also combine their usual skeptical events with something that could be described as a documentary channel. It all happens on YouTube on a weekly basis, wow. scheduled to 9pm CEST, so Central European Summertime, every Wednesday. There have been two talks so far. And uh, the inaugural and pilot talk was on the 8th of April with Sonia Ciampoli, whom our listeners might know as a host of Radio Cicap, and Rodolfo Rolando, who's recently become one of the highest ranking members of Cicap. Uh, they talked about the Dyatlov Pass incident, one of the spookiest mysteries that happened in the Ural Mountains in 1959. The next speaker was Massimo Polidoro, who probably doesn't need much introduction either. Massimo! Yes, uh, especially since he has been on this show at least three times, on episode 18, episode uh, 140, and also on episode 189. It was an interview that was aired on the 15th of April uh, with Massimo, and the next talks will be about how scientific research is conducted and disseminated, as well as how to interpret the slogans and claims in the beauty industry to be safe from scams and falsehoods. 
Chicap National Coordinator Andrea Ferreira says this new initiative is part of a complex set of actions that aim to convey the message of critical thinking and the method of science to society as a whole. Well, I certainly welcome this step. Well done again, Chicap. Uh, the talks and events are, of course, available on their YouTube channel after they've been aired live for everyone to enjoy, as long as you understand Italian, that is, of course. And we'll provide the links, of course, for everyone who's interested. You're right, though. Italian just sounds so good. You could listen to it even if you don't understand it. So Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to. Go ahead. It's like yeah. music. And if you want to hear more, then uh, check out Massimo Polidoro's YouTube channel, where there's lots and lots of videos that he, he has produced <laughs> on different topics. And he's he's lovely to listen to as well he's he's a brilliant speaker and he explains everything very clearly so you 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 might be able to understand it even if you don't understand italian yeah and massimo has done a few in english as well in english as well yes 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 some some of them are in english the most of them are in italian all right i think that has been all uh, of the news that we wanted to cover this week so we need to find out who's been really wrong lately I think it was uh, Claire Klingenberg who mentioned... The who was wrong? No, no, she's right. Oh, no, okay. She's always right. Uh, or has been so far. I, I make no uh, promises for the future, but so far she's been doing okay. No, but she, when she was with us a couple of weeks ago, she mentioned the Nobel disease. Mm-hmm. And that is the unfortunate tendency for certain... Nobel laureates to get uh, hubris and start to promote nonsense just because they have received a Nobel Prize and they think they know everything. So, well, here we go again. Mm-hmm. And this guy is one who's been in trouble before for similar reasons. Luc Montagnier was one of the three recipients of the 2008 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for his work in discovering the HIV virus. And that's, of course, very well done for him and very much uh, deserved. But that doesn't excuse his very controversial later studies, uh, which he published without peer review and where he claimed that he had detected electromagnetic signals from DNA and somehow went on to seem to endorse homeopathy, which he said... uh, uh, I don't know how it came from one thing to the other, but... uh, it, it was uh, very strange. And now he's at it again. He has been taken in by an Indian study, again not peer-reviewed, that claimed to have found evidence that the SARS-CoV-2 virus was manufactured from the HIV virus. The study was recalled by the authors after lots of criticism, but Montagnier still thinks the results are true. And that's really strange. It's particularly Uh, dangerous, isn't it? Because we know that some people go by um, a message from authority. They will believe something because they think someone's important enough to be right. Quite right. I mean, if any, some crank somewhere says something outrageous, you could just ignore it. But if uh, this is Nobel Prize behind that person people tend to listen and he got the nobel prize for h isolating hiv mm-hmm. and he should know about viruses and yeah. well, obviously he compares it to hiv yeah and yeah. i can't, can't help but think that when all you have is a hammer 
everything everything looks like a nail yeah exactly (laughs) right he compares everything to hrv because that's what he's an authority on yeah and he should know his viruses right both yeah exactly hiv and sars-cov-2 are rna viruses but they don't belong to the same family or even the same group of viruses so uh, it makes no sense to me at all to claim uh, this and uh, he seems to claim that there's some genetic sequences that have been taken from hiv and added uh, artificially to something else uh, using crispr cas9 technology and he keeps insisting on this even if lots of other scientists have ruled this out uh, several times so uh, it's another example of the Nobel disease, uh, which turns out to be really a thing. And I wonder if it is... Yeah, you get hubris. You, you, somebody gives you the best, the finest award you can get, mm. and people start to praise you and invite you to, to important dinners or lectures and stuff, and you suddenly be- begin to think that you know it all. Yeah. Well, just when you think you can't do anything wrong is when you go right ahead and do it. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Very wise. Yeah. Yes. Worth worth self-doubting, isn't it? No, that's why I keep doing things wrong once in a while to remind <laughs> myself. That, yes. <laughs> Me too. Very, very healthy. You should all do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just one thing about Luc Montagnier mm-hmm. that he was uh, working for a while with uh, Jacques Benveniste, a French immunologist. He was a very acclaimed, highly acclaimed scientist as well. But the problem was that he started to study the the, the water memory, uh. and he wanted to publish a, a paper in in the journal Nature. And the editor of of Nature back then, John Maddox, oh, he declined it. Really, and John Maddox, John Maddox, we've heard about. Um, uh, several times, and uh, we mentioned the John Maddox Prize that the nominations are still open for until the eleventh uh, of May. Hmm. So, yeah, John Maddox rejected that, and Maddox insisted that there should be an invest a proper investigation with a select committee of investigators, and one of those investigators was none other than James Rendy, ah. <laughs> and they found found out that the methodology that he used, Benveniste used, was absolutely flawed. And when they came up with a rigorous protocol, then they couldn't replicate no, the no, results. No. But and uh, because he claimed that water had memory and that was the basis for homeopathy. Yeah. And then Luc Montagnier went on to say that Benveniste was not a, f- a pseudoscientist and he's, he's not a quack. He knows what he's doing and there is something to that, mm-hmm. his research. Mm-hmm. So that was that stirred up quite a controversy uh, around Luc Montagnier earlier on. Yeah, Yeah, I knew I had heard his name before and I researched a little bit, but I I didn't come across that story, but that's true. Now you tell it. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So for uh, keeping to push yet another not peer-reviewed idea as true and uh, that supports conspiracy theories as well, Luc Montagnier... And I don't care how many Nobel Prizes he has. I think it's one, but I don't care. (laughs) He gets today's prize for being really wrong. Well, now he definitely has two prizes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) At least. Bloody hell. But doesn't the one 
cancel out the other. Yeah, mm. possibly. Well, well, maybe so. <laughs> Nobel prizes are not given out for nothing. No, so. no. That that first prize was probably well deserved. I I don't dispute that. But um, yeah, doesn't mean that everything he says after that is correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Pontus. Thank you. And before we go. I'd like to hear a quote, because I'm pretty sure that, Yelena, you have a, a nice quote for us to finish on. I have a very, very long quote. Is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> Luckily. <laughs> no. It's a quote from Leonardo da Vinci, and it goes like that. Experiment is the interpreter of nature. Experiments never deceive. It is our judgment which sometimes deceives itself because it expects results which experiment refuses. We must consult experiment, varying the circumstances, until we have deduced general rules. For experiment alone can furnish reliable rules. Do you hear that, homeopaths? <laughs> homeopaths? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> memory in water. You know this memory in water thing? I always think about the poo. What about the poo in water? Does it also... Yeah. All the poo in water, yeah. Yeah. Because they never discuss They never discuss that, right? Mm. Anyway. No. They don't. All right. But that really concludes our show. <laughs> and I'd like to thank all three of you, Yelena, Pontus, and if I may, especially Deborah for joining us today. It's been great to be here. Thank you ever so much for inviting me back. Yeah. Thanks for coming. You're always welcome here. And uh, we wish you a speedy recovery. Thank you. <laughs> with, your, with your ankle. And talking about speed, please... Don't run anymore. <laughs> try to stay away from running. <laughs> No more running for Deborah. <laughs> Don't hurt yourself. Yeah, I think you're good on that one. And I really hope that uh, we can have a, a nice chat again in person at some point very, very yeah, soon. Yeah, when this is all over. Uh, when this, this all madness is over. Yeah. Well, we don't know yet about QED. Mm. Unfortunately, we still haven't heard of uh, of what's up, but uh, our hopes are not very high up. But they're not zero. They're not zero. No. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd like to thank our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Baka baka. Bye bye. Hey do. Mislat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. Deborah, for one second I thought um, you were going to 
say uh, uh, that the message on this show is drink red wine, but you know, that's <laughs> the <laughs> other message also works as well. without saying. Yeah. Goes without I saying. thought that was the song at the end. I thought that was the, <laughs> what you played out to. Yeah, right next to you, stay the fuck at home. All right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. CHICAP National Coordinator Andrea Ferrero says this new initiative is part part of a complex set of actions. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's me, Mario. So Andrea Ferrero says uh, this uh, new initiative uh, is... Uh, <laughs> Um, sorry. <laughs> when does this stop being racist? Somehow it becomes... No, I love Italian ac- uh, accents. 